Um, so this morning, I'm excited to share with you about this trip to Zambia that Paul and I were blessed to go on and what God showed us and just what we learned about the culture and how God used us. And uh, there's going to be a lot of pictures and some videos. So we wanted the kids to be out here this morning to kind of see uh, what that was like and to be a part of it. And, uh, and so this morning, I, I just want to start with this picture. Um, that was one of the happiest times of our trip. Um, we had soda, we had candy, and um, no rain. Uh, but we'll get to that in a minute. We left, our, our flight left on Rod, in, from Rochester on a Wednesday morning at 5.40 a.m. And we arrived in Lusaka, the capital of Zambia, on Friday afternoon. So we started at 5.40 a.m. on Wednesday. We got to Lusaka, the capital of Zambia, um, on Friday afternoon, and then started our trip from Lusaka to Fimpulu, which was the town that we were staying in. And so I wanted to show you what the highway looks like that we drove on. Uh, this is the highway that goes from the capital, from Lusaka, all the way up to the 11 hours that we had to drive from Lusaka to get up to Fimpulu. Um, and these potholes, these were good ones, because you could dodge these. Um, potholes at 120 kilometers an hour are a riot. Um, when you're like going like this to avoid potholes with a trailer behind you and everything, it's just, you, you feel so much closer to God. Um, we, had, uh, we had an 11 hour drive. We actually drove partway there Friday night, stayed in a really cheesy hotel that looked like something from a, a I guess a Disney princess movie or something like that. Um, our room was pink with rainbow lights, right, Paul? It was really pretty. Um, and, and the headboard on Paul's bed, whenever he would like roll over, the headboard would hit the light switch and the rainbow lights would come on. It was really interesting. <laughs> and then we ended up arriving in Fimpulu on Saturday at 11. So we really started on Wednesday at 5.40 in the morning and we arrived at our destination on Saturday just, just before lunchtime on Saturday. It was a really long trip to get there. We were pretty exhausted by that point. Um, and I want you, to, under, I want you to, to understand where we went to. So I actually have a part of the drive with us that I'm going to show you by video now. So this is the main tarmac. Uh, this is the highway. It's called the tarmac. That's what they call it. It's the only paved road in the area. And as you're driving on this for 11 hours, eventually you turn to downtown Fimpulu. And this is Main Street. You can see the, all the signs that tell you what's there. I don't know where any of those things are because I couldn't see any of them. But this is the road. And I wanted you to experience the Main Street and downtown Fimpulu, that, where we serve. that's probably about 25 years old. Has no weather seals. It rains in the car and outside the car. And you see the power lines? The power really poles no went to, to a medical clinic, and that's the only place like they went to. The homes don't have electricity. Um, you're going to see a school in a little bit. But this is a typical road in 
and actually the main street in Kumpu. Now, have you noticed all the businesses on the side of the road and all the homes? Crawling through mud pits. Or just the like, tall grass. You just have to put it on video. <laughs> like this. <laughs> Should I put my window up first? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because why not? So the building that we're coming up on is the medical clinic. And it's a government-run medical clinic. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And then there's a couple other buildings. These are part of the um, property that the Joshin Ministries own. On the left-hand side, this is their part of their school. That's their cafeteria. Talk about the school in a little bit too. So that was our drive to downtown or center Pimpulu. Um, I don't know if you realize there were not a lot of houses there. Um, just you don't know, see that many houses. When you do see them, they kind of look like this. Um, so this is one of their houses up here. Uh, let's see if I can do the pointer. Nope. So one of their houses up here on the left. Um, that building with the hut in the mid with the grass roof in the middle was either one of their houses or one of their cooking stations so they had small houses that were made from uh, from bricks that were made from clay they had thatched roofs most of them um, some of them have upgraded and they're pretty if they're you know pretty uh, hoity-toity they have the sheet metal roofs and that's considered a, like a high-end upgrade but most of them had grass roofs their kitchens were outside and they would start a fire and cook outside in their little huts not in their homes um, I think one of the things that really puzzled me is a lot of paradoxes as you looked at their lifestyles. You would see them living in, you know, grass roofs, clay houses, dirt floors, and they'd wear suits. And you're thinking, where do they put them? Where do they store them? They don't have closets, you know? It's like, how are they? And so you kind of start to think about, like, how do they do what they do? They don't have refrigerators. They don't have electricity. So how are they taking care of their meals and all these kinds of things? So it's really kind of interesting. Um, I think the most paradoxical thing that I saw was a brick house with a straw roof and a satellite dish bolted to it. <laughs> because you have to have your TV, right? Um, so they had a solar panel and a battery and they could run their TV and watch their satellite dish every now and then, usually when a, a football game was on, which is not American football, right? Just want to make sure you understand that. Uh, no running water. For most of the homes, in some of the downtown Fimpulu, center Fimpulu area, they did have running water only because the, the missionaries that we were staying with um, actually have helped move, get running water into their area uh, by putting in water tanks and, and putting in a well. 
but most of them don't have running water, so they'll walk to a river or to a stream to get their water um, that they cook with and, and clean with and that kind of stuff. Um, this is the family that we stayed with. This is the Colvins. Uh, Dominic on the left, and then Bethany in the red shirt, Bronwyn, Jeremy, and Leone. Um, we had a lot of time with them, and you might find this hard to believe, but the kids wanted to play with me all the time. <laughs> couldn't understand that. Um, they've been serving in Zambia for about 13 years. They started out in a very primitive uh, tent-style hut, cooking outside with the snakes and everything else that would sometimes drop out of the grass and uh, all that kind of fun stuff. And now they actually have a house. The building behind them that you see is their homeschool room. They, uh, they homeschool their kids, and that's a separate room just for the homeschooling. Uh, the house that they built is this one. It's got a steel roof on it. They actually have running water. They have hot water because they have a solar heater that hooks up to, their, to a water tank, so they can have that. They have electricity as long as there's enough sunshine. It's all solar powered and batteries. Um, one of the things that kind of struck me as odd was they were trying to do some lamination. And in order to laminate things, they had to wait for a sunny day. So when it's sunny and we want to go outside, they're like, oh, it's sunny. We should go do office work because we can actually run the office equipment because there's enough electricity. I'm like, okay, that's just weird. You know, sunny should be outside doing something. But they'd go inside because they had enough juice where they could run the laminators. Um, the Colvins had many luxuries that the typical um, Fimpulu resident would not have. So they had an electric-powered refrigerator that, um, that they could also run off of their batteries. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't huge, but it definitely served their needs, though we had so many rainy days that they would have to turn off their refrigerator for periods of time and, and not use it, just so it would stay cold, so that they could then charge it back up again. They had a gas stove in their house, another oddity in Fimpulu. Um, the problem is that to get propane, they either had to go 25 kilometers away and wait a month or two for them to fill the tank, or they could drive 11 hours to Lusaka and get their tanks filled there. Because nobody's delivering propane in Fimpulu. Um, because only one family that has a propane stove. Um, so they also had two bathrooms inside with indoor plumbing, which is again very unusual. Um, each of the kids has their own bedroom. And this is something that is even common. The Fimpulu culture, um, a sign of wealth is for every child to have their own bedroom. So even people who can't afford much want to try to have houses with bedrooms for each of their kids. So the bedrooms get really small so they can all have their own bedroom because that's a sign of, of, of having wealth. Um, so we stayed with the Colvins. Um, we didn't actually stay at their house here. We stayed at the farmhouse. Now the farmhouse was their original home. You can see on the roof the water heater. Um, that's our solar powered water heater. When it worked, didn't work the first three days. It was cold. It was cold. Um, we actually didn't even have water for a couple days because somebody drained our water tank, um, so that was unfun. But this is where we stayed. Um, we had mosquito nettings around our beds to protect us from malaria, uh, or at least to try to help. We were also on malaria meds the whole time. And um, we had a lot of other interesting things like ginormous millipedes and huge spiders that hung out in the wall. Now, those spiders. They creeped me out at first. You walk into somebody's home and every, every place you went into, you would see these spiders. And they're, they're pretty good size. And I was kind of freaked out by them because I don't know about you, but I am not a fan of big spiders. 
So I asked the Colvins about this, and, and Bethany, just matter-of-factly, says, oh, no, okay, listen, if they're 2D, if they look flat and against the wall, they're good. They eat mosquitoes. If they're 3D or hairy, kill them. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, if you say so. <laughs> so you got used to seeing these guys crawling all over the walls. If, if you've ever lived in the south where there's, like, geckos, and you see the geckos kind of running along the walls, think of these as, like, gecko spiders. They just kind of stuck to the wall and would run sideways and peek out and just run around. And they, I guess they're, you, you got used to them after a while. You started to name them if you were by yourself for too long. Um, but that was really uh, something I had to get used to. Uh, when we first got there, the first project we jumped into uh, were some projects for a school. Um, the Colvins have, again, they've been there for 13 years. And one of the things they started several years ago was a preschool. Um, and they have a lot of kids there. Um, the preschool was so successful that the parents wanted them to continue the education on up through because the education that they were getting through this Christian school was far superior to what's in the public schools. So as the kids in preschool aged up, they started kindergarten. And then as that same class got to first grade, they added first grade and then second grade and third grade. So they're on third grade this year. Now, just out of curiosity, you saw downtown, you saw Main Street, I mean, you saw all the grass and a couple huts in the back. The school's preschool through third grade. How many students do you think they have? Just throw a number out. 350. Right? You're like, where do they come from? They come from huts that you can't see because they're just on dirt paths behind the other houses. They come from other little neighboring towns. Kids will walk several kilometers in the morning to get to school um, and then walk home afterwards. 350 kids are enrolled. Um, just so that you know, they pay a very small amount for tuition, and that tuition does not cover their costs. Um, this is all funded by other things that the Colvins do and then people donating to it. But 350 kids. Um, and the third grade class just got added. That's one of the older buildings, so it's finished. They were still building when we got there. They were still putting the roof on and some of the walls on the building that they were using for the third and fourth, next year, the fourth grade classes. So those weren't ready, and they didn't have enough desks for the kids. So we spent our first week um, cutting boards and sanding them down and assembling desks. Um, we, we ate so much sawdust. Uh, it, was, it was really rough. Um, and, and that's, I'm not kidding. Paul was like, I don't want to sand ever again, I think, by the time we were done. We built uh, probably about 45, 50 desks. Uh, we assembled, and then we assembled some benches because they needed benches for their cafeteria. Um, and here you can see us sanding the boards. Now, the boards were just these heavy, rough-cut slabs that we had to try to sand down smooth so the kids wouldn't get splinters on them. They were also soaking wet because they'd been left outside. So if you ever try to sand soaking wet boards, you find it's just not very fun. But we survived that. You can see I'm taking pictures, and they're doing all the work. Um, Jeremy's cutting some metal uh, for another project that he's working on. Uh, we were actually also installing uh, gas burners, propane-powered burners, in a kitchen area that was a part of the school. And he was cutting legs for the burners to get them up off the ground. Um, you can see the safety precautions in all these places are going to be phenomenal. Uh, there's, oh, uh, Paul. Um, sorry, Paul, I had to put that one in. Um, so this is where we were running some drain lines um, and plumbing. You notice the PVC pipe on the outside of the building? It's always, uh, you know, 70 to 110 degrees there. 
you really don't have to worry about frost or anything freezing, so you just put water lines wherever you want. Um, there's no building codes, so you just grab some glue, stick it together, bolt it to the side of your building, and walk away. It's all good. That was interesting, uh, really interesting. Uh, we also had to put in, with the drain lines, the way to get the drain lines through the building was to take a hammer and a chisel, and you just pounded a hole through the wall. And if the hole was this big and the pipe was this big, it's okay, the masons will come back and they'll fix it. And that's exactly the mentality of everything. So we put the sink, you can see, see the sink up there, see how big the holes are where the plumbing comes through the wall with the, with the faucets? Um, yeah, the masons will take care of that. You just put a hole in the wall and stick a pipe through it. So that's we did, what we did. We put in um, three faucets, because you have the outdoor faucets and two inside. We put in uh, three sink drains. We put in a water heater. Um, and you can see the, the water lines getting uh, run along the side of the building. The big tank on the wall is a water heater, propane water heater. That's something that's very unusual. I don't think anybody has one in, in that region. Um, and then the stainless steel sinks and countertops, and there were stainless steel carts, actually were uh, driven up from Fimpulu on a trailer when we came um, from, I'm um, sorry, from Lusaka when we went up, um, got picked up at the airport, and we spent a half a day just assembling stuff and getting it ready for them. To get water, we had to put in a tank. So the masons put in this in like a couple days. The masons had dug a trench, put in a foundation, built a platform, cemented it off. We put the kids all pick up the water tower, put it up there, and then we had to have one of them climb in and we cut all the pipes and stuck it in there. And they would fill this tank when the sun is out. The pump will run, fill the tank, pressurize it, and then they'll have enough water to run the sinks. Um, they have other tanks in the area. Um, they're also, they built a bathroom house. They're actually going to have like toilets that flush. They're going to have toilets that flush at the school. What they have is this little brick building that you walk into and you pick up this board and there's a hole in the ground and that's where you go and then you cover the hole up and you go out and you wash your hands and that's it. That's like, that's their bathrooms. So they're actually going to have like this uh, official bathrooms which very few people in the area had. Um, the boys that you see um, are boys, there's five boys that we spent a lot of time with, uh, an awful lot of time with. And they didn't understand too much English, but they understood enough, and we could communicate with them uh, pretty decently. But you just don't understand that their, their home lifestyle, their, what they're growing up in. Um, one of the boys in the picture um, is... is obviously being beaten by his father. Um, another one um, has been, basically doesn't have a family and just wanders from house to house looking for somebody who'll take him in for a while. Um, these are some rough situations that they, that they live in. And so to have somebody, any adult, spend time with them and actually do something with them meant an awful lot to them. Um, so we really enjoyed our time with them. Um, we stuck some of them down in, in actually stuck some of them down in the mud to help uh, get them. We stuck some of them in the water tank. And we put them a lot of different places, and uh, they were good sports about all of it. Part of what we were trying to get water for was drinking fountains. There are no drinking fountains anywhere you go in this region, so the kids actually had to be taught how to use a drinking fountain. And the first thing they did was they went over and turned the handles to wash their hands. But when you turn the handle and let go, it stopped. So they're trying to figure out how to wash their hands under, and it's like, no, 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 this is for drinking. There's a sink over here for washing. And so they're trying to explain to the kids what the drinking fountains are because they'd never seen them before in their life. 
Um, but they have clean water. Actually, there was a chlorine system put in. So they actually have, uh, it's well water, and then it's also chlorinated. So they actually have good water. And they had uh, four, I think it was four, no, three drinking fountains here, and then a, a sink to wash in. Um, this was one of their lunch programs. Um, so the public schools do not offer any meals. They go to school for a half a day. The public schools do not offer any meals. There's 350 kids from preschool to third grade at this school. And they realize that at least 70 of these kids are, are totally malnourished and don't get probably any meals each day. So for 70 of them, they provide a hard-boiled egg for them every morning. So they at least have some protein. And then, the reason we were working so hard on this particular building was their goal was to start this school term, which started the week before we got there, um, providing lunch for all their kids that were in like kindergarten through third grade. That's a lot of food. So they had to hire cooks, teach them how to use propane stoves, because they've never used them before. Um, they had to figure out how to cook, instead of just for their own family, enough food for a couple hundred kids in a couple shifts. Um, and we had to get tables for them to eat at, and they had to buy plates, and they had to have dish soap and, and all sorts of utensils. And so we actually put up um, hangers on the walls for all their utensils and stuff. And each kid would be given a plate of food called Inshima. Now, Inshima is, if you consider it like porridge or mashed potatoes made from uh, white corn or from maize, it's got a nice sticky consistency of it, um, to it. And then it's got, you've got the beans. You can see they're nice and soupy. And then you've got the vegetables that are all cut up. Um, one of the things that the school would do is they would buy the produce from the local people in their community. So not only are they providing a meal, but they're also creating a market for the people in their town to be able to then do better, which we thought was a really cool way to do it. Of course, that's if the people who said that they would show up with the food actually chose to show up with the food that day. If it rained, they might not. Something to keep in mind. Um, you can see the kids are eating with their fingers. Everybody ate with their fingers. So this enshima would come out like hot porridge. And while it's still steaming hot, you grab it with your hands and you'd roll a ball of it in your hands so it gets stickier. And then you would stick it to the beans or you'd press your thumb into it to try to make a little like, a, like one of those scoops, like those little you know, corn chip scoops. And so you could scoop out the beans or the veg and it's like just all running down. If you're a neat freak, this is not the meal for you. This is why the hand washing station was so important. They'd wash their hands before they ate, and then they had to wash their hands after they ate, because it's like all this white, sticky mess all over. So you can see the kids. The kids are actually eating their enshima there. I did not have pictures of me and Paul eating enshima. Um, but this was a typical lunch, and they would get a large bowl of this for every student. Um, and we thought that was pretty impressive. Um, the classrooms were one classroom per grade. And they would have um, one main teacher and then an assistant teacher, sometimes a second assistant teacher. And a lot of their teaching style was, was like call and response. Um, they didn't have a bunch of textbooks. So a lot of it was just, just you say things and they respond back. You say things, they repeat it back to you. And a lot of it was taught through songs. And so I happened to walk in on one of the groups where they were singing and practicing a song. See if you can tell what song this is.
You recognize the song? That was actually in English. Just want you to know that. First time I was listening to them, I'm like, what are they? Oh, I think I know the tune. I was like, wait a minute, I think I might even know the words. They're in English. They're actually singing it in English. Uh, but their accents are so heavy. Um, so you can see in the classroom, they had, they had tables there. They didn't have the desks yet. Those tables are normally in the cafeteria, but they had to steal them for their classrooms until we built all the desks. That's their walls. Um, eventually, those walls may get finished with a plaster coating on them and painted. Um, there's no electricity, so there's no lights, so it's just natural daylight that comes in. And that metal roof, when it rains, you can't hear a thing um, at all. But that was one of their classes. And anytime you showed up with a camera, they just loved it. I mean, they would just be like right there, you know, and they get distracted easy, but cameras were like, yay, I'm a hero. And that's just when they're running out to the side of the car and everything. Yeah, they just loved it. They ate it up. Um, so this was one of the new buildings that they had just uh, finished putting the roof on, and we were putting the desks in for that. Uh, but you can see that they're learning not only academics, but they were also learning about the Bible, and they're learning songs about God. Um, and one of the things that I really appreciated about the Colvin's ministry was they realized that when you're fighting culture, when you're struggling against a society that's caught up in witchcraft and so many other things, it's hard to get them to change their minds when they're adults. But if you can teach them while they're young, it makes such a difference. When you can teach them about God before they get indoctrinated with the witchcraft and all the other stuff, it makes a big difference. And so their goal was, that's why they started with the preschool, and their goal is to go up through sixth grade. And then after that, the kids have to pay for education um, and, and try to help out in, in those ways. Um, so we also installed uh, solar lights. That's me on the ladder. Um, we had to, uh, that's just for security. We had a couple of security lights we had to put in. I don't know how high that was, but it felt a lot higher than I'm sure it looks. And, uh, and then I couldn't get the bolts in, so Jeremy puts a small ladder up there, climbs to the very top rung of this, and he's like on the top, like little bumps on the top of the ladder, holding onto the post, kind of putting the bolts in. I'm like, you're insane, and he is insane. Um, but you have to be to be a missionary in Zambia, just throwing that out there. Um, even though the power poles were there, there was no power at the school. They've waited two years for the utility company to give them power at the school and they still don't have power at the school. They're hoping that someday they will. But the power poles are there, the power lines are there. They've requested power at the school. They're just waiting until somebody decides they actually want to come out and do that. Um, that would be very frustrating to us as Americans, wouldn't it? It was frustrating to them, too. Um, so the school was one part of our, of our work project. The second part was the farm where we stayed. Now, the farm, they had uh, pigs. They had chickens for, for eggs, and they would also then sell those eggs at a discount to the school because they had to help offset the cost of the farm help, so they're kind of paying each other back and forth. They had chickens that they raised for meat. Uh, matter of fact, for one meal, two meals, um, we, Paul and I watched some of the kids leave and go up with a big bucket and come back with a big pile of dead chickens, which were then um, prepared that day for us. So we had the literally farm to table. Um, as fresh as you can get, uh, chicken for dinner. Um, they had goats, and they also have started a fish pond where they can then raise their own fish. Um, we worked on a tractor and cleaned out the hydraulics on a tractor. We installed electric fencing. Um, Paul helped deworm 900 goats. What's it? No, 300, 300 goats. That's what it's supposed to be. 50? You slacked, man. 
Uh, we made a football field with goal posts, and we actually climbed, Jeremy climbed into those big green water tanks to fix a bunch of valves that were broken on them. So here's, um, here's Paul working on some fencing, and then you can see the, the guy on the left, he's got this metal, just this metal shaft. They call it a slasher, basically. It's, it's just a piece of metal with a couple sharp edges on it, and that's what they cut their grass with. Um, and so that you know, the grass, which might have started at maybe our, our shins when we got there, um, within two weeks was up over our heads. And it's the wet season, which means that anything that lives in a hole in the ground is moving, which means that you don't want tall grass next to your house because when the snakes are moving, you want to know that they're there and not be surprised by them. So slashing was a very big deal this time of year, um, keeping the grass down. Uh, the, the barbed wire fence uh, was there. We were actually putting in insulators and getting it so that we could um, protect the goats from being stolen. And that was the Purvis Electric fence. So they had a big battery set up and they had solar panels and a windmill that they used to charge the batteries so that they could power the electric fence to keep people from stealing the goats. Um, me, on the other hand, I just drove the Land Rover around and had a lot of fun while Paul was doing all the work. Um, and this was one of the fence lines. I don't know how many feet of fence we did, but it was a lot and we had quite a few helpers. Um, this is the tractor and it's overrun by the goats. You'll see that. Um, the goats owned, this is a tractor. The goats own everything up in that area. Uh, these are the water tanks and Jeremy had to climb into those full of water to help replace some of the valves in them. Um, and they kind of go downhill. And, <laughs> and this valve right here, if you turn that one valve, it drains the two big tanks on the hill into the tanks that are down below. The big tank on the hill was for the farmhouse. The smaller tanks, or the tanks at the bottom of the hill, were for the kitchen and for the bunkhouses. And some of the people knew that, and so Paul and I woke up many mornings <laughs> wondering if we had water and sometimes didn't. Um, because somebody would turn the valve, drain our whole tank because it was rainy, so rainy that the pump wasn't running all the time, so they'd drain our tank into theirs, and then we had no water until it got sunny, and the pump could come back and fill up our, our tank. Um, so we had almost daily trips out to the <laughs> tanks to make sure that uh, nobody was messing with our valves. Um, while we were working on the farm, we worked with those kids again, and then also a uh, Peace Corps worker, um, Clara. And um, Clara was actually, I think she's been there three years um, with the Peace Corps, and she's getting out of the Peace Corps, and she's actually going to be joining the staff at Shoshin Farm to help them with their agricultural programs. That's her background, that's what her degree is in. And she wants to stay in Zambia, but she's leaving the Peace Corps and, and going to be working with them directly. Um, the kids, for some reason, all the kids love hanging out at Clara's house. So if you're wondering where they are, you just drive past Clara's, and that's where they'll be. And that's her house. Um, I should mention also with the school and even with like Clara's house, um, the Choshin Ministries, when they hire a teacher, they also have to provide them with a house. So they build a house for them and they move them into the house. So they get a salary and they get a house. Um, I believe that, uh, her, that um, Clara's house was also one that was built um, by them, but there's a lot of other homes, several other homes throughout the area that were built through the ministries there to help provide the people who are serving there. Um, Clara does not have running water in her house yet. Um, her kitchen is still outside, I believe. And um, she was actually a lot of fun to be around. 
unless somebody messed with her bicycle and then you did not want to be near her because she got mad. Um, the kids actually stole her bike one day and she went on a tirade looking for them. Um, so those boys, uh, you'll notice that they're outfits. You got a dress shirt, you have t-shirts, you have a hoodie, you have shorts, you might have long pants, they might have one pair of shoes, they might have two or three outfits, um, but each of them, I think most of them, had a cell phone. Yeah, anyway. So, uh, so this was part of the farm work that we had. Um, we also had opportunities to teach, and we got to Fimpulu on Saturday around lunchtime, and so Sunday rolls around, and and uh, Jeremy and Bethany were not going with us to the church that we were going to. Uh, Jeremy had been gone for a week. They were going to spend a day together. So Paul and I walked a couple kilometers up to a church, uh, Pastor Boniface Church, and Paul knew him, had met him before. So we show up, and I didn't know that Bethany sent a letter along introducing me as Pastor Mike. Well, they knew Paul, and now they know I'm Pastor Mike. So as soon as Pastor Boniface finds out that I'm a pastor, he looks at us and he says, Paul, you're going to lead communion, and Mike, you're going to preach. <laughs> okay, so I did. Um, so that was, <laughs> their communion set didn't even have enough cups for everybody that was there. So they would fill it, and then they would bring the cups back, and then they'd refill it. And, and so like the, the communion was, yeah. Um, yes. What? Is that me? That's me, Yeah. So um, the windows were the only light, that, those little holes in the wall were the only lights that you had. You can see the wood beams that are up, up in the top, just the branches that are holding down the metal roof. Uh, they had actually done some upgrades to their church building. Uh, they had gone from bricks and boards to sit on to plastic chairs. Um, I found that plastic, the, the plastic chairs that have kind of like the rounded back on them, you know what I'm talking about, like the patio chairs, are really, you can stack them like really tall. That's like the third world church chair. We, we saw them in Bolivia. Uh, I've now seen them in Zambia. There's like, uh, I've seen them in Colombia. They're, like the, they're just like the church chair to go to. Um, but they couldn't secure their building. So they had a couple of the young people who would put them on their bicycles and take the chairs back up to somebody's house and then bring them back on Sundays. So they had like a portable setup, which we've been through before as well. Um, there was uh, probably about... 30 people there? About 30 people. And that would be a typical church configuration. So you could probably fit their church building, probably fit about three to four of them in this room. And as you were driving down the road, this is right off the tarmac, and as you're going down the road, you would see a sign for such and such church. And you'd see this little tiny one-room building, and that was, that was it. And you would just see a dozen of them. Um, this is very common. Um, so that was one opportunity that we got to teach. Um, I found out that my brother-in-law, Paul, is a celebrity. Um, apparently, he's not only the candy man, because he throws candy out of the vehicles, and so all the kids want him to drive by their street so he can throw candy out the window. Did not know that was a thing, but it is. Um, but also, he was the guest of honor at a 40th wedding anniversary celebration, for um, Sebastian, Ba Sebastian. And I have a picture of Paul with Sebastian and his wife, um, and those two of his sons, right? And uh, when you consider that uh, many people 
in this region do not live to age 40. To have a couple who was celebrating their 40th anniversary was huge. So there was a big to-do, and Paul was asked the day of to be the guest of honor, which meant sharing a message. I have pictures of Paul sweating at the table profusely, trying to figure out what he was, but I didn't put those up here. Instead, I have Paul sharing in front of everybody. Now, you have to understand something. This is where Sebastian and his wife are sitting. This is where Paul and I are sitting. You notice where everybody else is sitting. They know Paul. They don't know me. I don't know them. I remember doing a sermon years ago about Ruth and Boaz, where Boaz asked Ruth to come up to the table and sit with her. And I, and I made the comment in the sermon, how awkward would that be to be this nobody that nobody knows from out of town to get invited up next to the, the person who's, who, who, who's running the banquet and to have everybody staring at you like, what are you doing up there? Who are you? I was that person. And it was awkward. I'm sitting up there and everybody's just staring at me like, what's he doing up there? They kind of knew who Paul was, but they had no idea who I was. And I got to sit next to Paul because I was with him and he was the guest of honor. Um, so that was really kind of interesting to have a sermon message kind of brought back to you. Um, so Paul did a great job sharing about marriage um, at that event. And then the following Sunday, I was the guest speaker. And you've got you've to appreciate the poster. I think I'm going to get this printed big size and put in my office. Um, yeah, so, right? Right? That's all over the internet. It's on Facebook. It's everywhere. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. So, you gotta be kidding me, yeah. So that was the poster that was put out for family and friends, Sunday service. And um, you see their, their service runs three hours as a typical rule. Uh, the first hour is like a prayer hour, and then they have a Bible study, and then after that they have the actual message time. And uh, that's Pastor Field on the right-hand side. He's very trim. He's, he's a soccer player. Matter of fact, the, uh, the football teams actually, there's, I think there's eight teams he's involved with, and several of them attend um, the church services there at the church. It's kind of like a prerequisite. Um, their music team, just like being at home, um, they had, uh, let's see, they had a keyboard and drums. And the thing was, the louder it was, the better it was in their mind. So you couldn't understand most of the words because it was so distorted, but you could hear it. And that's what mattered. Um, some of the songs, again, we were singing, or we just kind of listening, and I, I was trying to figure out, what are they singing? And they actually were singing in English. But I had to listen really carefully to hear what words they were singing. Um, they sang for quite a while. They danced while they sang. And I thought, we don't have that kind of rhythm. Uh, they definitely did. On the, the far side on the right is Pastor Field. On, to the, his right is um, his mentor, someone who actually worked with several churches in the area and that mentored him. And, that's, um, and then that pastor's wife uh, was also my interpreter. This was the, the church congregation, all packed out here. There's me and Paul up in the top left. And then that's me preaching um, with an interpreter. And my microphone died partway through. And I realized I'm just going to speak really loudly because she's interpreting, so it's more important that she has a microphone. Um, but it's funny because, like, okay, I'm used to American mindset. So if my microphone dies, what's Jason going to do? He's going to get me new batteries. He's going to get me a new microphone or something. So the microphone dies, and I'm like, okay. And so somebody walks up, turns it off, turns it back on. The light will always come on just for a second. 
oh, it's still good. And he hands it back to me, and I talk for like 10 seconds, and it dies again. And I'm like, turn it off again. And it's like, all right, whatever. I just set it down. So I just finally set it down and just preach really loud. Um, but I got to share in this service, I got to share about the, um, the fear of God. And that was an interesting subject to try to teach cross-culturally because in, in Bemba, their language, the word fear and the word afraid are the same. So you can't talk about them being different. Kind of like we, we would kind of interchange them as well. So you want to talk about kind of like reverence and the fear of the Lord from this one perspective, but you don't want them to think about it being terrified, like God's going to like, you know, strike them into a greasy spot on the carpet. So try to get that concept across is fun. Um, the missionaries helped me with that. I also got to, this was the teacher's, this was the teacher's um, lounge at the school, and I got to do a devotional with the teachers on the fear of God. Um, and that was a lot of fun too. And then I think one of the highlights for Paul and I were, were the men's retreats. Um, they normally do an all-night, like an, an overnight, excuse me, men's retreat. This year they did two. They started with the, with the married men coming on Friday night, and then they left Saturday afternoon. But then before they left, the single guys showed up, and so they were all there for one service together, and then the single guys stayed through Sunday. So I got to share about the presence of God with the, men, with the married men on um, Friday night with, with interpreter. Um, and one of the things that I loved, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put up a video. You're not going to be able to see much because it was at night, but I want you to just hear the guys singing. Um, whenever they had a service, the guys would just, somebody would just start clapping, and whatever they clapped, that was the rhythm for whatever they were going to sing, and then somebody would just start singing, and everybody would just join in singing. And they'd break out into parts and all sorts of stuff. I don't know what they were singing, but I just love listening to them sing. Yes. Don't do that. The Zambia thing. So, uh, so there would always be, they probably would have like 10 minutes of singing, and it was just gorgeous to listen to the guys sing. Um, the married men did much better than the single guys when it came to the singing. Um, we then had to, Paul and I each got to teach a breakout session. I did one on mentoring, and Paul did one on um, being transparent um, with, with situations and, and uh, with problems and things. Um, afterwards, we had like this big discussion time, and it was amazing to hear these guys just talk about um, life and applying these things to their lives. They, would, they actually got mad because we had spent like an hour and a half with them discussing the three different topics that were in the breakouts, and there were, it was time for lunch, and the cooks were all ready, and they were, but there were still some questions on the floor, and they did not want to leave until everybody had a chance to have all of their questions discussed completely. And, there's some, and th then they're asking me, well, what should we do, Mike? And I'm like, don't ask me. I don't, I'm, I'm a foreigner. Let's talk to these guys who live here. And you de they decide. So they ended up breaking early, um, breaking early after an hour and a half of discussion to have lunch. And this is what we had. So um, we had enshima with fish, the whole fish, eyeballs and everything. And I asked, one of the so I asked one of the tables of football players, do you guys like eat everything, like including the eyeballs? And they're like, three of them are like, mm-mm. And one of them's like, uh-huh. I'm like, prove it. And he did. And I, and I wish I hadn't asked him to prove it. Um, so we had fish a couple times. We had the fresh chicken up there. It actually was very tasty. Um, the cooks did a phenomenal job. 
Paul and I got to the point where we would just ask for half portions. That's a half portion of food. Um, they would put twice as much in Shima on your plate and expect you to eat it all. And we're like, I, I can't. Um, so they also drank cough tea, which was heated up watery milk. So they would take the water and the milk and mix it together and warm it up together because you didn't have a good way to refrigerate milk. So you would actually cook. It made sense. You would cook the milk, right, to purify it. And then they would put the tea bag in it and take that small plastic cup that you see and add about four tablespoons of sugar to it. Still don't you did, there this, there's this mob over at the side of the cafeteria, and I'm like, what are they doing? And they were all standing around the one plate with the sugar going like this. It was pretty crazy. Um, but it rained all the time. It rained every single day. We did not go 24 hours without rain. And it got to the point where it became a problem when it flooded out the roads. So I have a video of the rain and a picture of the road flooded out. I just want you to... It was just a little bit of rain. And it could do that for an hour. And it did that every day. So it flooded out the main road. And actually, it got to the point where um, they couldn't drive off of it. So some of the men were going to leave the retreat and couldn't. But we just told them God wanted them to stay. And they stuck around. So wait, you're going to see a bridge? See to the right of that bridge where the sand is? Normally, that sand was about three feet out of the water. And that's how much higher it was. And the water was just running over the road and everything. So. People couldn't drive through it, so they were kind of like stuck there. A bus was coming with the young guys, and they couldn't get the bus across the, the water, so all the guys just roll up their pant legs and walk through it, because that's what you're doing. Okay. Um, so when we had everybody together, we had about 120 men, and then I got to share uh, a message called Passing the Torch, which is about mentoring and passing on our faith to others, and we need people who are willing to receive that, as well as those who are willing to teach. Um, and Pastor Fields interpreted for me. And then after that, um, we played football in that same building on the cement, which was soaking wet and slippery. I took a header about three times. I mean, I came down, I went down hard. Uh, I actually played, which I thought was pretty cool. They let me play on one of the teams. Um, they humored the old guy. And uh, we had a lot of fun playing up in there. But we couldn't play outside after we put all the work into making a football field out in like a field. It was too wet to play outside, so we played indoors on the cement. Um, the group that was there for the single guys included two football clubs. And footballers are not necessarily the most spiritual group. Um, they are the most sought-after group by the women. Uh, I guess I'll put it that way. And uh, many of them probably don't know the Lord. And so the message about the presence of God talked about having a relationship with God. And so Jeremy looks at me and says, Mike, I know you don't do mornings, but would you do the 5 a.m. session tomorrow on the presence of God? I mean, how do you say no to that? So proof that God does miracles, I was up and did a session at 5 o'clock in the morning. And I was happy about it, can you tell? Uh, so... The, the men's retreat happened like the weekend uh, before we came home. We spent a couple more days working on projects, um, whatever, whatever needed to be done. And then the trip home began after that. Um, 
And with the trip home, we had to go 11 hours again. We were doing it all in one day, no stops. So we're getting up early in the morning, driving 11 hours. And this time I got to ride in the back of the Land Rover for 11 hours. So this sounds like one of the starts of like a really bad joke. So there's a missionary and his daughter, two guys on a short-term missions trip, and four pastors in a Land Rover going to Lusaka. And so there's eight of us in this vehicle um, with a trailer behind it, driving 120 kilometers an hour, dodging. Yeah, it was, it was a great time. Um, there were times where even the guys who are used to Jeremy's driving were nervous. Uh, it was really cool. When we got to Lusaka, we did have a, we got there on the Wednesday because our flight went out Thursday night. So we had, um, Wednesday night we went out to eat and we actually got to have like, what that was like sausages and chicken wings and like, like almost normal food. It was, it was really good uh, at a restaurant. We did some shopping the next day. Jeremy found a coat that he fell in love with. Um, we got gelato, believe it or not, we got gelato in, in uh, Lusaka. And then we headed to the airport where Bronwyn um, gave us hugs and then gave us a big air hug on our way out. Um, and it was actually really hard, always really hard to say goodbye. Apparently, the, after we left, the two other kids, only, only Bronwyn got to go with us down to Lusaka. The two other kids had like a meltdown for like two days uh, because I wasn't there to play with them or something like that. I don't know. Um, so we left on a Thursday evening at around 9 o'clock. Was our, was our flight was supposed to leave at 9, 9.30. It didn't leave until closer to 10.30. But we were at the airport at 7 o'clock Thursday night. We got into Rochester at about 1.30, 1.45 a.m. Saturday morning. Stayed in a hotel and then got home uh, Saturday around, I got home on Saturday around 5 o'clock. Um, so it was from Thursday at like 7 p.m. until, now it's 7 p.m. their time, which is like noon here. Because they're seven hours ahead. So it was, like, it was like Thursday at noon, our time, until Saturday at 5 p.m. Is, it was the trip home. And then just wanted to pass out and do nothing because I was so exhausted. Um, so that was kind of the highlights of some of the things that we did. But I was asked by David, um, what are some of the things that I learned? Uh, and so I have more than 12, and I'm going to fly through them. Um, re- people in Zambia, as well as people in America, people think, that more money is the answer to happiness. And it's not true. But in America, we think this is true. And in Zambia, they think that if they just had more, if they weren't poor Africans, then life would be good. They'd be happy. If they, if they had more money, they'd be happy. And, that's, and that was one of their mindsets. Um, people are more concerned with how they appear to other people than they should be. So having a satellite dish or extra bedrooms or a cell phone, even if you only have two changes of clothes, uh, were a sign of social status. And so how they appeared to other people was very significant. And I think that that is um, also true of people in, in America. Um, people are more interested in TV than in Bible study. People struggle with contentment because there's always something more or something better than what you have. Um, People are attracted to other people who genuinely care about them and spend time with them. And I think that that's true in both locations as well. 
People are attracted to those that are genuinely care about them and spend time with them. Uh, random thought, Zambian time is dependent upon the weather. So we had a bonfire at 5 a.m., but it rained. So it began at 6.30, which was 20 minutes after the rain because nobody's coming out in a pouring rain like that. So your time just adjusts by the weather. So Zambian time is, I guess it would be kind of be like snowstorms in upstate New York, if it's, but we just cancel. They didn't. Um, pastors in Zambia feel very isolated. I think that's also true for many pastors in America. Um, we learned that pastors need others to talk to and to be accountable to. Um, pastors in Zambia do not have the training opportunities that we have. There's a pastor's library where I spend an afternoon just sorting out books that were donated to them, where the pastors can go and pick up books and commentaries to help them with their studies. But the, the group of pastors that were going to Lusaka had just spent three years going through a book called um, Knowing God by uh, Packer. And they spent three years going through that together as a group, and they were going down to get a certificate of completion and like a graduation from this class. And that was one of their formal trainings. One of the pastors who's been a pastor for years actually admitted in the, in the vehicle that he's just now finally realized that salvation is, is through faith in Christ alone. There's nothing else that's attached to it. Because they've been teaching that it's, it's, it's faith in Christ plus this, plus this, plus this, plus this. After being a pastor for years, he's just realizing this. And you're like, wow. Um, they don't have the training that we have. And I learned that I am super blessed to have David um, and the other elders and pastors in my life to do ministry with and to do life with. Um, another random fact, not all spiders are bad, but most snakes are. Okay, just throwing that one out there. Um, government health care does not work in Zambia. We uh, actually learned that the government facilities get funding as long as people are surviving. So if somebody comes to the hospital or the clinic and is doing really poorly, like they're probably going to die, they just won't admit them because then it doesn't count against their record. And you're like, what? Yeah. Um, government health care does not work in Zambia. Because of that, um, actually, Bethany Colvin has provided more health care, I think, to their community, than, and she's not even trained in it, but people are coming to her to get... Um, Cuts disinfected, um, getting the bot fly worms out of people's skulls and skin, um, burns, getting burns treated, uh, and those kinds of things. And she's, you know, weighing infants that are born premature and helping them get them up to health. And she's providing health care, even though she doesn't have a degree in it, because just common knowledge for us is more than what they're getting in the clinics in Mpulu. Um, Government programs are designed to help government employees and not the general population. I'm not saying it's true in every country, but in Zambia, that's the way that it works. Um, another random thought, everyone thinks they need a cell phone. I think that's a universal thing now. Um, I learned that missionaries want relationships with their churches just like churches want relationships with their missionaries. They don't want somebody that's just going to write them a check. They want genuine relationships. Um, missionaries need support when they're home as well as when they're on the field. We think like, oh, they're home. 
Well, yeah, but they also need a vehicle to get around in, and they need places to stay, and they need someone who's going to maybe do something nice for them so they can spend some time together and get to reacquaint themselves with their families and such. Um, missionaries in rural areas um, are very isolated. So if, if you're a missionary in Lusaka, the capital of Zambia, there's English-speaking schools for the government officials that also are there, like the ambassadors and such. There's a lot of English-speaking uh, English churches. But when you're out where these guys are, 11 hours away from that, you don't feel like you have much fellowship. They're very isolated. Um, another random thought, the things that we do to help, the ways that we want to help, the ways that we help that make us feel good, like shoeboxes, are often more harmful than helpful. Um, that's a whole separate topic, but we, we want to do things that make us feel good. You know, we'll put together a box because we're helping, and then we pay for the shipping. We don't realize that on their end, they're paying for shipping at an escalated price. That there's churches in places in third world countries that are actually auctioning off boxes. That the older kids beat up the younger kids to get the good boxes so they can try to sell some of the items so they can get minutes for their cell phones. Um, the things that we think are helping are often not helping. And I want to encourage you with this random thought. You're much better giving your support to someone who's boots on the ground than trying to send something over that you think will help. So just let that sink in, random thought, but it should change the way that you focus on giving and missions. Um, so. Uh, culture without God elevates sex and possessions to the highest priority and thinks it will bring them the ultimate happiness. And this is very true in the Zambian culture. Um, culture is changed when people truly change and only God can truly change people. Culture must be subservient to the truth of God's word and not the reverse. When culture determines what truth is, there's a problem. God's truth must stand on its own apart from cultural interpretation. Um, another random thought, three weeks of rain every day is very depressing. I learned that, David. Um, relational ministry and evangelism is the only long-term strategy for the church. Relational ministry and relational evangelism is the only long-term strategy for the church. Having an evangelism program every now and then, an evangelism event will not work. Having just random studies will not work. Relational ministry and relational evangelism is the only long-term um, strategy for the church. True community is exhausting and rewarding. I watched a family give more than you can ever imagine. Um, I wrote down some of the things that they do. They provide jobs, houses, education, meals, basic health care, uh, mediation from conflict, clean water, counseling, scholarships for those that want to go on, um, and relationship. And you would go home at the end of a long day and you would find people sitting on their front porch, the Colvin's front porch area, well, it's like a little ledge, waiting to talk with them to get help with something or to ask them advice on something, usually to get something from them that could help them. And I watch them give and give and give. True community is exhausting as well as rewarding. 
I learned that Americans do not understand what community really is, and yet we desperately need it and want it. But we don't understand what it really is. Another random thought, hot showers are good, and with good water pressure is a gift from God. Hallelujah. Amen. That's right. So sure. Um, there's always more to be done, and at the same time, there's always a need for rest. And I think the biggest balance challenge that I saw for the Colvins was there's always another need, there's always another project, there's always another way that, some, that they can serve, but at the same time, they need rest, and they need time as a family, and they need to be able to say no. But what happens when you say no, and it costs the life of a two-year-old child? That happened. And that's when you learn your next lesson, which is we are not God. And we cannot change people, and we cannot meet every need, and we cannot be there for everyone, but we can and must be available for God to use us. I learned that our lives are examples all the time, so live your lives wisely. In the little things that you do every day, day in and day out, you have no idea what impact you're having on the lives around you, like those boys who just had a couple goofy American guys hanging out with them, doing projects, but showing them genuine love and treating them with dignity and what impact that will have on those boys. I also learned that everything that Paul and I did in Zambia can be done by anyone and can be done in our own neighborhoods. And we often think that missions work is for missionaries. And yet, to fix something up for somebody, to provide a meal for somebody, to invest time in somebody, are all things that we have the ability to do here in America, in our own neighborhoods, to make a difference for the kingdom of God, to teach people about God and his love and to express that to them. And I want to encourage you to think about that as you think about... Um, your daily routines as you think about your workplace. You don't have to go somewhere else to make a difference. And I think the verse that stuck out to me the most, because you're like, okay, well, it's church and we haven't even talked about the Bible yet. Um, I knew there wouldn't be a lot of scripture in this one, so next week David will make up for it. Um, because David is going to teach you 30 things about the Davidic covenant since I gave you 12 things that I learned in Zambia. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Lots of Hebrew involved. <laughs> First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. It's just such a great reminder of the importance of relationship with the gospel. Um, and in, second, in First Thessalonians excuse me, chapter 2 verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. And I want you to think about that verse and consider making that one of your life verses. It's not just about sharing the gospel. It's about sharing the gospel and our lives. It's not just about sharing our lives. It's about sharing our lives and the gospel. The gospel has to fuel what we do, 
but we have to do that inside of relationship. And I so much enjoyed my time with the Colvins because their life is all about relationship. I actually met some missionaries who really get it. It was like, yeah, we're going to live our lives in this community among these people, and we're going to share as much of our lives with them as we can so that we can also share the gospel with them. And it was a blessing to see that. Um, and I really enjoyed and was ministered to through their relationship with others. But I want that you to consider that verse as a life verse for you. That you would care enough about people to share both your life and the gospel, the gospel and your life with them. To think through your daily routines and realize that every person you come in contact with is someone who matters to God and someone you can show God's love to. I'm not saying you have to give them, you know, 16 things they need to know about God and three things they need to do to be saved every time you meet somebody. But you can surely show them what it means to be a child of God and to love them the way God loves us. And that's what I want to encourage you with uh, as we close our time this morning. I want to thank you for your prayer support. Um, I was really blessed to be able to go and to be with my brother-in-law. I want to thank Paul for inviting me to go. Uh, as I share with you, I was praying that God would help me find a balance between taking vacations that are for my enjoyment and finding also, uh, trips that I can go to where I can be a blessing to others so that my vacations are not just about me, but that I can use that time to also build God's kingdom. And Zambia is what God brought up for me to do. And I want to thank Paul for his obedience. Um, this was Paul's fifth mission trip to Zambia. And when I first heard that he was going back in 2015, um, I was not so sure that was a good idea. Um, but it was definitely a God idea, wasn't it? And both of us uh, enjoyed that time together that we had and realized that there's nothing special that we did. But it's that God was able to use us even in little ways because we were willing to just be obedient to him. And so I thank Paul for, for inviting me along, for putting up with me in the farmhouse for three weeks, as well as on the plains and everything else, and, uh, and for all the prayers and support that you guys gave. Um, I have a lot of other stories. I'm going to let you get going because we're at 1230 now, so we're going to close in a word of prayer. Um, if you'd like to hear more about certain specific topics, I'd love to share them with you. Uh, I even, have, I even have a video of me dancing a football dance, but that's saved for a different day. You don't want that in public. I was like, don't chew that one. I didn't. I pulled, pulled it. So why don't we stand and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Um, I also wanted to let you know that the choshenfarm.org is the website for the missionaries that we went to be with. Um, there's ways that you can choose to support them if you want to. Uh, it costs about $25 a month per student U.S. for education, teachers, food. Um, they get about $3.50 a semester per student. So you can see they run a big deficit. Um, so if you wanted to help toward that, uh, they have needs on the farm. They have a lot of needs. Um, but if you're interested in supporting them, uh, it's choshenfarm.org, and I can provide that link. But I want us this morning, you have your bulletins with some prayer requests. Uh, I really want us just to focus on praying for the Colvins this morning and for their ministry, and uh, let's do that as we, as we close. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the lessons that you teach us. 
pray, Father, that you would help us to understand what it means to truly be a community, that we would appreciate the blessings that we have and understand contentment, that we would be serious about understanding our, our lives are examples and choosing to live in a way that honors you and that points people to you. I thank you for your faithfulness and your protection for the trip that Paul and I were able to go on and for all the things that you've taught us along the way. Help us to be good stewards of that and to pass it along um, to our family and friends, to our churches. And Lord, we thank you for the ministry of Bethany and Jeremy and their family uh, for 13 years in Zambia and the continual sacrifices that they make. We pray that you would give them wisdom, that you'd give them love and strength um, endurance, that you'd help them to understand boundaries. Father, that you would give them a community of believers that they can truly grow with um, in their town. And Lord, that you would just help them to experience uh, your love and your grace uh, in each and every day as they minister to the people that you've called them to. We thank you for this time and for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.